Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith. I'd like to welcome you once again to this edition of the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's extra episode, we have a conversation with Steve Camp. Now, any assessment of contemporary Christian music in the 1980s and 90s would have to include the name of Steve Camp. His first national release, called Saying It With Love, topped the then-fledgling Christian music charts in 1978. That's 45 years ago this year. He put out a steady stream of top-selling albums and singles for the next 20 years. But in 1998, he did something that amplified his influence far beyond the Christian music scene. While he was on tour in Europe, he visited the church where Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses, an event that, of course, many say ushered in the Reformation. Steve Camp sent out his own 107 Theses on Reformation Day, October 31st, 1998. He was calling for a Reformation of his own, a Reformation in contemporary Christian music. He was calling on Christian musicians to make direct, uncompromising music that confronts the world with the message of the Scriptures. Steve Camp's 107 Theses was widely covered at the time in Christian media. In fact, I wrote a couple of articles about it myself way back then. And some of the ideas he introduced are being hotly debated even today. So when I heard that Steve Camp had a new album out and he was giving interviews for the first time in more than 15 years, I couldn't resist the opportunity to have a chat with him. We talk about his new album, which is called Neighbors in an Age of Rage, but we also talk about a lot of other things as well, including his work as a pastor of a church in Florida and what he thinks about contemporary Christian music and the state of evangelicalism today. Now, by the way, before we get started, I did want to mention that you can find Steve Camp's 107 Theses on the internet. You can just Google Steve Camp's 107 Theses, or you can check the show notes for today's program, and I have a link there. Well, Steve Camp, welcome to the program. Uh, it's I've been really excited about meeting you and chatting with you, and I want to tell you why. Um, not, ju- not just because you've got a new Christmas song coming out, and I'm excited about that and want to hear about that, but also because in 1978, I was a junior in college at the University of Georgia, and I did a Christian radio program on the college radio station. I mean, we were hardcore leftist radio. In fact, the tagline for this non-commercial station is we are the last radio station on the left. And they mean that in both senses of the word, right? But I had, I talked them into letting me do a, a three hour long Christian radio program on Sunday morning I from six to nine. And then I would get, get through and then run to Sunday school and church after that. And, um, in 1978, your single, I don't know if it was the album that came out then, but your single, Saying It With Love, came out. It was probably one of your very first albums or singles. It was. In fact, it was the first album, and it was the title uh, of the album. And uh, I recorded the record as really a uh, more of a demo and uh, sent it down to to word records and they said no we want to release this 
Uh, I had sold an old van that I had at the time to have the money to make the record. And uh, so, you know, it, it's funny. People bring up that record even to this day. So yep. what is that, 45 years ago? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, 1978 is whenever I I first ran into it. And um, I love that song. It was, uh, it was in my view, um, I, and I listen to it from time to time. And I th- personally, I think it still holds up. I mean, you know, the songs you listened to you were in, when you were in high school and college, you always think are the greatest songs of all time, right? But... But uh, I I think that song really holds up. I mean, it's about a three minute long song. It's got you know it's got great musicianship on it. It's got a pretty kind of wah wah fuzzy guitar solo in it. I mean, it's kind of like the perfect three minute pop song, except it's about Jesus and or I should say and it's about Jesus. Well, a, a gentleman by the name of Paul Bogish Jr. Uh, Paul, uh, I met through Alan Kubica, who owned Chicago Recording Company. At the time, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. And so it's where I did a lot of my early recording. He had a thing called the the Sound House, a studio, and then he moved it to a more elaborate place called Chicago Recording Company. Chicago was famous during the day for doing jingles, commercials. So that's how I started out. I did a free dent chewing gum commercial uh, a McDonald's commercial. I did a Macomb Savings Alone, and I met Paul through some of the producers at the various uh, commercials there, and uh, and he was great. Uh, Pat Leonard came in on some of that record, and Pat went on to work with Michael Jackson uh, as a keyboard programmer. He produced some Madonna records, uh, so some hidden jewels there with those guys in Chicago. But um, yeah, did that record. In fact, the title of the record, I can't take credit for, which was Saying It With Love. It was off of a book of one of my heroes of the faith early on named Howard Hendricks, who taught at Dallas Seminary and really was the father of Christian education. He had a little book called Say It With Love. And so some of my songs throughout the years have been due to my reading and my study. And uh, and and I thank the Lord for Howie. He's with the Lord now. Uh, but thank you for bringing that up. I don't have too many people that remember those days. In fact, if they do, they'll say we had the LP and we had the eight track. <laughs> it was previous to cassettes and some some genres. So anyway, yeah. but thank you, Warren. Well, it was a, it was a pleasure, and and I, in fact, I want to sort of linger, if I could, Steve, on that era because um, I, I, you know when I've get a, when I get a guy like you on the on the program, I can't resist kind of you you know doing the whole arc of your career, not just you know I, we want to get to the stuff you're doing today, of course, but uh, but um, but you mentioned um, you know Wheaton, you mentioned uh, recording those early days of jingle singing in Chicago. Um, take me back to that era, and maybe even a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. You know, you're you're still you're still in high school. When, when when do you become a believer, and when do you think that maybe God might be calling you into a vocation, a calling of Christian music? I'd be delighted to. I I came to know the Lord uh, in October of 1971, and uh, my older sister Judy had shared the gospel with me. Uh, early on, when a typical Christian family story, when I was six, seven years old, I said the words, uh, but I was uh, coming into my junior year of high school and uh, had a friend of mine uh, that I just remotely knew back in the day. I was attending Wheaton Bible Church, and this was at the height of the Jesus movement. 
And he had come to the Lord just three weeks earlier. And after a basketball game, I played basketball in high school. You'll have to take that by faith at this point. <laughs> but uh, I was at a place called the Big Banjo, and it was a pizza place after the game. And his name is Pete. And he came up to me and shared the gospel with me. And in my arrogance, Warren, I said, well, Pete, this is great. I'm so glad you've met the Lord. And do you want me to disciple you? Do you know that I've been in the church a number of years? And he he said something that no one had the courage to say to me. He said, disciple me. He goes, man, I'm here to tell you that all your morality and civ civility and self-made righteousness is not sufficient to get you into heaven. He goes, I'm here to share the gospel with you because you don't know Christ. Mm. No one ever shared with me that kind of boldness before. And an hour later in that greasy pizza place in front of my buddies on the team, my girlfriend who was a cheerleader for the team uh, came to know the Lord. And I found out early on that there was a cost to following Jesus. I showed up to school, Wheaton North High School, uh, with my Bible and that next Monday. And some of my best friends, they said, is it true that you received the Lord the other night? And I said, yes, it is. I was exuberant. They said, I guess we don't have to tell you where we want to shove that Bible. Mm. And all of a sudden, I was confronted with the reality that I had to find new friends. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so coming out of that time, uh, Larry Norman had uh, one of the early uh, pioneers of Christian music, Christian rock, Jesus music is what we called it back in the day. He had come to our church later on that fall and I was baptized the night that he did a full concert. And it was coming into June of that following year. On June 6, 1972, I was holding my father when he went home to be with the Lord. Mm. And it was a week later, Warren, I don't know if you remember this, but a huge uh, uh, gathering of Christian people down at the Cotton Bowl in Texas called Explo 72. You bet. In fact, I've written about it extensively myself. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with that. I was there for that, and it's where uh, Billy Graham was one of the keynote speakers, but they had guys like Jackson Brown and Chris Christopherson marching in that Jesus March. It's where I had reacquainted myself with Larry, Randy Stonehill, uh, was their second chapter of Acts, Barry McGuire, and I saw these guys known as long hairs back in the day uh, leading policemen to the Lord. We all know it's by God's sovereign grace, but they were fearless in their testimony for the gospel. And so I graduated from high school a year later, came out of that time, and I moved out to LA, in fact, to see Larry and some of those guys and be mentored by them for a time. And I ended up getting uh, a record deal with a label called Mums Records. Um, and so it wasn't contemporary Christian music, first and foremost. I had written some love songs and got a deal with them. But then that album that you referred to was sold to Word in 77. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, again, want to hit the pause button right here, Steve, and just say, during that time when you're out in California, I've heard you say in other interviews that Larry Norman really kind of mentored you in the craft of songwriting. Is that is that am I remembering that right? Yes, absolutely. That was he was quoted, I believe, by Paul Simon, uh, who wrote Bridge Over Troubled Water, when someone asked, who is the great songwriter of our time? And back then, Paul Simon said, there's an artist named Larry Norman, 
who he considered the quintessential songwriter of that day, the poet laureate, if you please, uh, in rock music. And so when I met Larry, it was on the area in the craft of songwriting. In fact, on that album, Say It With Love, uh, was one of the first songs I wrote, and Larry helped me finish it, called If I Were a Singer. Yeah, yeah. He really impacted me during that time on the craft of writing in those next several years. So I, he's with the Lord now, but I owe him a great debt of gratitude. Yeah. Well, in fact, I looked uh, through your discography and I, and I saw a couple of co-writes with Larry Norman on on uh, some some of your albums, which uh, I don't think a lot of um, I mean, you know, and, and I don't mean to overgeneralize generalize, and you can, of course, correct me if you don't think this is a- accurate. But I, I think a lot of people would say Larry Norman was, you know, pretty edgy and um, and and your. It, especially as your career evolved into the 80s and 90s, um, I would say your career maybe veered a little bit more in the pop direction. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I was a piano player. I played classical guitar as well. Uh, and I was more pop rock. Larry was, you know, in the line of, say, the Stones or even the more edgy side of Bob Dylan. Um, so it was on the crafting of the songwriting itself. If I were a singer is a beautiful ballad. Yeah. Another song that we co-wrote was a song called under his love. And again, ballads, but Larry helped me also write some contemporary things. Uh, but just how he approached a song in some Bob Dylan was his hero. And uh, so those great rhyming schemes, 10 verses in a song that he would used to write, but yeah, clever rhymes and he helped me say what i wanted to say not what he wanted to say through me but what i wanted to say and develop that gift of writing um that was something that has stood me the test of time because i'm you know i'm i'm an average singer uh i'm a decent piano player but i feel like my gift is in the area of singer songwriter and that's where influences like larry and writing even in that time i mentioned jackson brown uh, really, even the early Elton John, James Taylor kind of thing, singer-songwriters, Carol King, Joni Mitchell, that would craft beautiful songs and some of Bob Dylan's music as well. Um, obviously, the Beatles were a tremendous inference to so many people because they original songs, original artists, and they covered a wide swath of music. So, yeah, mine was more pop music, uh, pop rock. But in those early days, I wanted to be able to write songs. I was shy as a, as a teenager, strangely enough. Songwriting provided a vehicle for me to come out of my shell a bit and to sing in all kinds of circumstances, primarily in churches. And Larry was key for that. Yeah. Well, Steve, we're going to have to skip over so, so much. But I, I do want to make this one point and ask you to talk about it. And that is this, that you, you mentioned that you went on Mums Records, which was a secular label, not a Christian label. And that was in a, that was in an era when, I mean, yeah, word was around, but they were mostly inspirational, you know, Southern gospel quartet music, probably in the 60s and early 70s. You know, it took really Larry Norman's early albums um, to, you know, in another land and only visiting this planet and that kind of thing to really yep. kind of create the Christian rock scene. So I, I say all of that to say this and ask you to talk about it. you were on secular labels. I mean, you you were not uh, you were singing about Jesus, but you were singing on mums and um, and I know you had some interactions, for example, with the legendary Clive Davis in those days. What was that 
like for you as a believer trying to be there? Were you were you guys trying to form the Christian music business, or was it just something that was evolving and you became eventually a part of? Yeah, you know, I, it was the latter. I, in 75, when I got the deal with Mums, I was 20 years old. And here, uh, they lost their distribution with Phonogram, and then CBS ended up buying them. And uh, there was a few artists, a guy named Boomer Castleman, uh, Albert Hammond, and an artist named Steppenwolf, probably the most famous of all those on Mums. Well, when Clive Date was CBS and Clive Davis, who went on, you know, through the development of Whitney Houston and all the American Idol artists, uh, I remember having a conversation with Clive and he said, Steve, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but all your songs, except for maybe two that I had submitted, mentioned Jesus. And he said to me, if you could change the name of Jesus to baby, you'd have much better songs because <laughs> it was so new. No one knew about this kind of music. And uh, so I got back my songs. I told him I'd write the best love songs I could, but I wanted to sing about my faith. Well, it was so new. He says, why don't we part company in an amicable way? And uh, and then I sent it down to Word Records in 1977, and they came out with that in February of 78. So I ended up doing four for Word, and then about 10 albums for Sparrow as a result of that, and then a couple for a Warner Alliance, and then some independent projects. But it's been, uh, Warren, a good 25 years since I've had any kind of national release. And even though I'm independent today, I, I'm learning the industry over again. But on this new album, people have told me if you were signed to a label, Christian or otherwise, they would not allow you to say 80% of what you want to say in this album. No. So it's been a journey, uh, you know, same industry today, but yet uh, different vehicles. So being an independent artist today, even talking to you here this way is unique for me. But, you know, my dear wife, Cindy, who's here listening in over here at the church, uh, you know, we're we're learning again. I'm learning again what it means to work through these kinds of issues and at the same time uh, be hopefully still dedicated to the, a biblical worldview in the songs. Yeah, well, I promise you that we will get into the 21st century eventually, but I want to hit the pause button on you, Steve, again, and and take you back to the to the 20th century because, um, uh, I mean, your you know uh, your history in music and in Christian. I mean, when you mentioned Boomer Castleman, for example, a lot of people don't know Boomer Castleman, but you know, uh, I'm I'm pretty good friends with Michael Martin Murphy, who uh, has had plenty of pop and country hits over this. He and Boomer Castleman used to be songwriting partners. They were in a band together. They were kind of part of that West Coast LA cosmic cowboy kind of a thing going on for a while. And so, I mean, you, the fact that you worked with him and, and were you know, label mates with him were, that was all to me just, just sort of cements the, the fact that, I mean, you were there at the creation of Christian music, even, even whenever Christian artists were having to be on secular labels. So now, but let's fast forward a number of years because I want to, you know, so, so in 78, that first, um, you know, album comes out on uh, on Murr, but then you have just a long succession of other albums, and a lot of them are doing, you know, really great, a greatest hits collection, and so on and so forth. But I want to fast forward you to 1993 and 94, because now you're with Warner Alliance, and um, Michael Omardian is your producer, and 
you know, I, I, Michael O'Martin is just such a stinking legend. And I, I just wanted to ask you to share a few reflections on, you know, what it was like to have him as your producer and do some co-writes with you and sort of that era of your career. You know, I was so fortunate to work with a number of people, Bill Schnee, uh, recording mixing engineer Asia, who, who was who recorded for the Eagles. By the way, he was an engineer for the Eagles and everybody else, right? Yeah, Steely Dan, and yep. he did all the direct disc stuff for Michael Jackson. Uh, I met Bill in '82, and we started to work together off and on a bit, and just just a genius, just a, a delight. And here, I'd always been a fan of Michael. His keyboard playing, people don't realize this. He even played some of the keyboards on Billy Joel's Piano Man album in the early 70s. Holy cow, I didn't know that. He has got a, a just a, a huge history. And you're right, he is a legend to this day. Um, Terry Christian, who is his engineer, I met Terry at Sunset Sound when I was working there. I worked there on some of my early Sparrow records. Uh, worked with James Newton Howard there, a great film uh, scored today. Sure, yep. Just brilliant. And so Terry had moved to Nashville after his time there at Sunset Sound and became Michael's engineer. Uh, or I take it back, he was Michael's engineer in Los Angeles. And during that time, I had called him and said, I want to do another record, but I'd like to work with Michael. He put in a word with Michael, and we did two albums together, Taken Heaven by Storm, and Mercy in the Wilderness, which was one of the first praise and worship albums before the big Michael W. Smith era and some of those things early on. In fact, I remember we sang some of those songs uh, there at Warner Brothers, and people couldn't believe it that an artist was singing a praise album at Warner Brothers, even though I was part of the gospel division with Warner Alliance. Yeah. So to work with Michael was a delight. I was only slated to do two or three songs with him, and we got on so good that we ended up finishing the entire rest of the Heaven by Storm record. And uh, what a delight it was to work with him there and uh, learn so much. We were able on the Praise album, Warren, uh, he then had moved to, in between those records, had moved to Nashville. Uh, I was living in Nashville. Terry had moved there. And I his nickname was Omar. And right. I, I told him, I said, Omar, let's let's do this Praise record together. He liked it. But there was a couple of songs, Warren, that we drove to Memphis to work with on Beale Street. And it was where Elvis used to record in some of the great blues albums. In fact, the B3 organ Michael played was that same B3 that a lot of those great Memphis blues artists played. And we had a black choir we picked up there to do some of the recording with. So this history of some of these great, great musicians and artists, half the time, Warren, I'm in the studio pinching myself saying, how did I get invited to this session? Yeah, <laughs> and it yeah. was my own record, but the Lord opened up the doors and we remain friends to this day. I owe, a, a, again, a huge debt to not only Bill Schnee, but to Michael O'Mardian, Terry Christian, some of these great artists. And out of their involvement, I was able to work with Jeff Beccaro uh, from the band Toto, the greatest yeah. shuffle drummer of all time, Bill Champlin and Jason Chef uh, from the band Chicago and uh, Toto and other groups. Uh, man, just a delight. So I, I just am so honored and humbled that the Lord has allowed me to work with such gifted artists that Dan Huff, um, 
you know, who's a great record producer as well, but that would come into the studio and take my raw songs and interpret them in a way I could never have imagined. Right, right. Well, okay, so uh, all of that in some ways, Steve, is kind of prologue to what I want to ask you next, because uh, so let's, so uh, given all of that, let us stipulate for the record, Steve Camp, pioneer of uh, Christian music, uh, Jesus music legend, and now we're up to 1998, and the industry has changed a lot, um, and um, you know, it, people have realized they can start making money at it, big money at it, and um, it's become you know kind of wildly commercialized. And Steve Camp has the audacity, has the temerity, is presumptuous enough on Reformation Day, the same day that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittburg, Germany, all those years ago, Steve Camp nails 107 theses to the interwebs and creates a little bit of a hubbub. Can you talk about that and why you decided to do it and what happened afterwards? Oh, yeah, it was it was a firestorm, no question. And Warren, I can't believe how much research you've done here. I am humbled and impressed thank you for for going through this history of of the arts together with me on this well i'm old enough to remember most of it firsthand so. <laughs> there we go though at a distance though at a distance yeah well i tell you what happened was i was touring through europe at the time and uh my sound man and i we were in hamburg doing some concerts and I said to him, let's go down to Wittenberg to see where Luther walked and Philip Melanchthon walked and the Great Reformation took place in 1517. So we headed down to Germany, uh, to that section of Germany, and we're there for about three or four days in between events. And it was so powerful, so moving. I had a chance to walk in the steps there at Castle Church and to see where Luther and Melanchthon were buried at the back of the church and get a chance to see his study where he ministered to his students and the cost of what it was. I got to meet many of the people that knew of the great Reformation history and talk with them, interview them, spend some time with them. And so it was out of that, I was just thinking to myself, and I announced to my sound tech, Jeff, at that time, what would it be like if the 95 theses came out today, but this time, rather than directed to a recalcitrant Roman church, what if it was directed to evangelicalism in general? What if it was directed to the publishing and music houses, the record companies of today? What would Luther be saying? And so as I tell people, I wasn't trying to outdo Luther with 107 theses. I just had more ground to cover than papal indulgences. <laughs> and, uh, and so what had happened, what led to the conviction of that, Warren, was during that time, all of the great Christian companies, Christianly companies that were there, uh, Sparrow Records and the different ones were sold uh, like to EMI Capital right. and other, yep. other companies. And it was something that I just thought, man, the world has bought up. I mean, these large multinational conglomerates have bought up every ounce of Christian music. There wasn't anyone left. And I thought, what is this going to look like? And all I could do was be confronted, first of all, with my own sinfulness of sin. My own, I thought my message had been solid throughout the years. Uh, my my uh, 
my call to ministry was was I felt solid, but my methods were no better than what the labels were doing. Why? I was charging not a lot compared to today's standards, but back in the day, $15 a ticket for people to come to a church to hear me sing songs about the gospel or worship and so forth. And I was coming out of a concert and a family of uh, husband and wife and four kids. I was the last one leaving the auditorium with my tour manager and different ones. And long story short, they were outside and I said, thank you so much for coming today. And they said, well, we loved what we could hear uh, outside here. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, the concert was sold out few thousand folks came, but they said, we asked one of the el- the deacons at the back of the church, could you leave the door cracked so at least we could hear it? We couldn't afford the ticket price. Mm. They said, two, with a family of six, that's 90 bucks back in the day. If we bought a CD, that's 10 or 20 bucks, d- double CD, a t-shirt or a ball cap. They said, man, a couple hundred dollars, That's that is a fortune for us. So they said, but thank you for for singing about the Lord. And, you know, little did they know that the Lord is convicting me the whole time they're speaking to me. I went back to the hotel room. I'm not an emotional guy, but I wept and went back to Nashville. And I thought, I've got to change this. And it was literally a cold turkey situation. I started to cancel events and said, we'll go on a love offering only. Um, I had to confront the reality of my own sin, and that was the precursor that led me to writing the 107 Theses. If you read through the preamble, it's not so much about the industry, but my own questionable uh, methods of charging for concerts, and I needed to get rid of it. Steve, let me interrupt you there, just just for our listeners' sake, if I if I could, the um, uh, we're not going to go through all 107 theses, but since you mentioned the pre preamble, uh, it it it's you know it goes on for a, a page of single space typed, and I, I mention all that just to say uh, I I want to actively um, s- seriously encourage all of our listeners to just 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 go online, just Google Steve Camp 107 theses. It's in a number of places on the internet now, and it's easy to. Find still, even all these years later, 25 years later. So go find it, go read it. I found it nourishing again when I read it uh, in preparation for this interview, Steve. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but go ahead with that. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Yeah. And, and then I started to break it down. Where is it that we need to repent? Where is it that the industry needs to change? And again, when we make money a prerequisite for ministry, uh, you know, then we're no better than any other artist out there that's trying to make a buck off of the the hoi polloi. Yeah. You know, whether you're singing about Jesus or whether you're singing about Thunder Road, it doesn't matter at that point. And I just thought, man, as a, as a Christian, as an artist, as a singer-songwriter who's a Christian, we should do this for a better reason, a better purpose. And uh, so that's what led me to write them that summer. Uh, I started to write these down on the plane ride home. We didn't have iPads and things back then. So I was writing on the back of of letters and vomit bags, you know, from the airline and different things, all these different thoughts. I had scraps of paper everywhere and uh, got back, finished it, and it came out October 31st on Reformation Day. We printed 10,000 copies. A brother in Nashville donated his time and came up with this beautiful poster, fairly large, 
that had the preamble on one side, some of the photos we took of Luther's church on the other with the 107 theses. And it was fascinating at that time to, um, you know, to have as a, uh, you know, as a instrument there to be used of what would this look like? What would this be like to have it come out? So we sent it to every radio station, uh, to churches, to record companies. I remember seeing the guys from DC Talk at the Masters Golf Tournament. And I saw Toby there and he goes, well, I'll, I'll tell you this much. You got us talking. It's all we talked about the whole trip over here. Yeah. And uh, it went on for about a year. I was I was uh, disassociated with by most in the industry. In fact, I called to get uh, cassette tapes and CDs of my own product to go out and do concerts. And uh, I was told by the distribution network, they said, Steve, we're sorry, but we're out of your product. And I said, man, I called three or four weeks ago and you had several thousand units and I was calling to get some for the concerts. And this one gentleman who I knew, he goes, let me be honest with you. I was told by the record companies, throw all of your material away. And other artists would call me and say, behind the scenes, we agree with you. But I was told by my manager or by my label that if I stood with you on this, they would cancel the concerts and they would not release the product. In fact, promoters that I had worked with for years, I said, let's do it on an offering basis. I'll still give you a percentage of it, but let's not charge. Let's open it up free. And uh, and here, Warren, what happened was they said, Steve, if we do that, if we work with you, I've been told we won't get XYZ tour coming up or this artist or this whatever group of artists. So it was a hard time. I remember being, when my kids were little, I remember being in a hardware store and on the other side of the aisle, some guys in the industry, in the Christian industry, they were using some pretty graphic language, including the F-bomb. And one of my boys, they said, Daddy, are they talking about you? And I walked around the aisle with my sons and uh, they were stunned I was there. And I couldn't believe it. I said, I thought in this moral pluralistic world, all opinions were at least welcome at the table. And I have biblical support for mine. Uh, what I found that was interesting, my friends in secular music, in country and pop and rock and so forth, they got it. They were calling me saying someone finally had, you know, the, the, the courage of their convictions to put this out there because we see the corruption of it all. We can't believe the hits that you're taking. It caused quite a storm. And it was through that time that I, you know, I just thought, Lord, if you leave me to record again, give me the strength to do it. But it was a rough time. I lost a lot of good friends. Um, it, it cost a lot. I'd go into a recording studio. They'd have the poster in there, Warren, with a big round red circle with a line through it. And it it had, you know, superlatives on there, F Steve Camp or whatever it would be. But, uh, you know, the Lord had his sifting process in my own life. Uh, he used it as part of my own sanctification. And uh, to this day, artists will come up and say, man, gutsy call, but we appreciate it. You know, part of it was I came out against the Devil Wards. I was part of the GMA board yeah. for several years. They gave yeah. me the worship event that Bill Gaither used to run. They thought, hey, this is Bill had taken it down to about 200 people. They said, this will be flop. Steve will be driven out of the industry. And wouldn't you know, at the very first year I did it, we had about 2,700 people out, different artists. John MacArthur came and spoke. We had national Bible expositors. 
and it was the number one rated event for seven years in a row with the GMA. A gentleman from Word Records said, we spent $150,000 in our showcase. You spent 10, and you're the number one rated event even over the Dove Awards. Why is that? I said, you brought the entertainment. We brought the praise. Mm. Praise to the Lord. And the Lord taught me something early on in that, that we shouldn't be quick to sell like Simon the sorcerer wanted to purchase the gift of the Holy Spirit by the apostles. And Peter said, may your money perish with you. I think we needed people in the industry. Now, Warren, uh, and I'll be quick on this, but now I think it's even worse. You have major tours and praise and worship music in these major tours is no longer uh, to be used in the church. It's an art form. In fact, sadly, it's a form of entertainment that artists are charging $50, $75, $150 a ticket if you get in the gold circle seating as if it's a if it's it's a pleasure to be able to shake hands with that artist before for 150 bucks. And I thought, man, this is worse than I ever thought. And at Bible conferences, I won't mention the names, but some of my heroes of the faith today, they have their own bodyguards, their own autograph lines. Everyone wants to be a rock star. And I thought, man, that was a unique time to take a stand. And uh, and still, we need reformation and revival again. Man, we're talking about a woke culture today. Let's begin with the with what's going on in the Christian circles today before we ever confront a non-believing world with their Achilles heel. Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, you know, we're going to run out of time here long before I run out of questions. So um, let, let's fast forward a little bit. So was that kind of the beginning of the end for your Christian music? I know you've transitioned to be a pastor and you've been a successful pastor for, you know, many years now. But was that the pivot point for you? Yeah, it was. In fact, I went on staff with Grace Community Church in 99 after that. Uh, John was was gracious and he said, I think you ought to turn up the heat a little more. Uh, moved back to Nashville about a year and a half later. Uh, couldn't sell our home back then, and and uh, but it was a privilege to be associated with John and that church back then. Um, but yeah, I I worked in conjunction with other churches. Then I started to redo uh, some concerts and uh, do what we would call as concert crusades uh, per, per my friend Keith Green, the late Keith Green at that point. Uh, but, you know, yeah, it started to to do so. And I started to write some other songs, came out with a record called Abandoned to God. Um, and during that time, a few years after that time, just a just a, a, a custom album, as it were, uh, you know, some writing on it. Uh, but it'd been a long hiatus. In fact, when I came here to Palm City, been been lead pastor here at the cross uh, for 14 years. And uh, the former lead pastor here, without going into detail, did not know what I was walking into. It was all about the money. He ended up resigning uh, a few months after arrived here. And uh, I never wanted to do any more concerts or so forth because I wanted to earn the trust of these dear people. It's a smaller church that I'm so honored and privileged to pastor here and to serve but it was one of those things I didn't want them to think, oh, here comes a guy that has a history of music. He's just going to be here part time. He's going to go out and do concerts. And I would just take I bet you in the last 14 years, I've done maybe four or five events total. Uh, but now they've given me permission uh, to record again over these last several years. And uh, I've done two concerts now in the last year. 
and uh, they are supportive of it. And uh, I'm hoping that the Lord will give me the wisdom on how to balance the priority of local church. Uh, and then also at the same time to go out as a springboard now as a as an artist re-entering the music industry, not the Christian music industry. This is a normal release coming up here. But uh, just to re-enter during that time, uh, you know, and and to say what what voice can we have in the marketplace again to do these special events for the Lord? Well, and so finally, after all that, we do get up to the 21st century and to what you're doing today. So let's say a little bit more about that, because you, you've you got a new album. You've got a Christmas song uh, coming out. Uh, it's uh, th- this this new album um, uh, in, in some ways is unconventional, if I understand it. It's um, it, I mean, for one thing, it's got like 25 tracks on it, doesn't it? 20, 25 tracks. 26 songs it's oh, a double word, album okay and uh and the, this christmas song makes it 27 but it's called emmanuel in fact it came out today and people can hear it online at all the streaming services they can go to our website realstevecamp.com realstevecamp.com i i tried to get my name stevecamp.com but they wanted like $50,000 for me to buy it and i thought <laughs> i don't have that kind of money and uh, and one of the uh, my wife found that of uh, website available realstevecamp.com the BGE folks in Nashville that I'm so proud to work with that are helping market and promote this for us uh, they've been at this a long time and so these gals have been tremendous so far and they said oh we love the realstevecamp.com so they've been developing the website it's a work in progress so if you go there there's going to be just a few things to look at but in the next six months keep walk with us walk with us in this journey absolutely well steve i said we couldn't go through the 107 theses we also can't go through all 27 tracks but 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 give me give give me kind of an overview i mean you know if 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 there's somebody like me who remembers you know i mean i remember the steve camp of the 70s but i know a lot of our listeners will remember the steve camp of the 90s when you you know um are are we going to hear are we going to hear are we going to listen to it and say oh yeah i recognize that voice i recognize that style i recognize this music or is it going to be something different and new you know, it's going to be all of the above. Uh, for example, my wife, Cindy's a graduate of Juilliard in violin, and she ended up doing 13 songs of violin on this record, even some of the more upbeat rock things and so forth. Uh, Tim Miner, my producer, we've walked eight years yep. on this journey. I owe so much to Tim. We've learned a lot. We we not only agreed, we discussed, we argued, we talked about messages and themes, but the music was our common goal. And Tim was like, brother, just say what you need to say ultimately. And so this is my Ecclesiastes, if you please. It's my Abbey Road. It is an album that is trying to address all of the issues that are going on in the culture right now. Uh, again, 80% of these songs, a label would never allow me to say uh, and, you know, we want to address these issues from a biblical worldview. So this is meant for the common man and woman out there. Uh, it's also got songs of faith, glory in the cross, which will be coming up at Easter time uh, this year, indelible grace. And I put together a a one-take ad-lib version of John 3, 16 and 17 in the studio and we have scripture set to music on this record. We also have songs 
uh, called Rage, Neighbors in an Age of Rage, All Lives Matter, which is a very controversial thing. Our first single uh, coming up at the end of January, I believe early February, is called Another Mile, and it's my olive branch uh, to BLM, Antifa, and some of those radical groups out there uh, speaking the truth and love to them. I've been privileged to meet with some of their leadership uh, throughout the years. And, you know, I get a lot of threats from them and the uh, alphabet people. I get a lot of threats from them. But, you know, we want these songs to state the truth of these issues of CRT, of wokeism, of identity politics, um, all that's going on in the culture today. But to state it in a way that says there's a message in the word of God and the truth of scripture that we don't need to stutter about, that we don't need to be ashamed of. And I think we're lacking that in the arts today. So I hope uh, with some great artists out there, country artists, particularly John Rich and different ones like that, that are conservatives doing well in some of these messages, but that these songs will resonate not only with the church at large, but with the culture as well to say, let's move the needle forward uh, with some of these things and speak to it intelligently, uh, not stone-throwing to anyone, not, not um, as it were, amputating anyone from the culture. I mean, I'm not better as a Christian than anybody out there. I'm better off because I have the forgiveness of sins through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I'm not better. I'm a sinner still in need of grace, saved by grace, all of grace. And so this album is dealing, I have a song about child trafficking on this record called Stolen, and some songs about human trafficking. And I was privileged to write with Nia Peoples, the great actress from the fame days, on a song called Walls. And uh, and seeing those walls come down, we reference Marvin Gaye in there. And uh, so all kinds of songs on this record, some wonderful love songs, for my wife, Cindy, I was so honored to sing a, a duet with a gal named Etta Britt, one of the great soul singers in, in the industry. And, uh, oh, I was just humbled and honored that she would come on a song that my producer wrote called Our Love. And I was just holding on, hoping I could keep up with her because this is one gifted woman. And uh, I was so grateful that she acquiesced to, to this album. So, you know, all kinds of material on this, but this is a a horizontal record for the common man on what it means to love your neighbor in an age of rage. And the album is simply going to be called camp. And I hope people will, will appreciate it and will, you know, support it on social media and other places. And we'll really pray for it because we're going to be taking on some issues out there that we're going to be knocking down the door and coming on uh, with unapologetic boldness uh, this coming this coming spring. So thank you for asking that. Yeah, what you, keeps it off, Warren, is Emmanuel, this really sweet, wonderful, joyous Christmas song. Well, Steve Camp, thank you so much for being on the program. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, Steve Camp is back now. I know your local, your congregation, your church will say you've never gone anywhere. You've been right here all along, but um, but I am so delighted that you are back making music at, for public consumption. And um, I'm um, uh, so grateful that you spent some time with me today, and also to kind of recount the whole arc of your career. It's been uh, it's been remarkable. I've uh, been a fan for a long time. Been highly, you know. I mean, I was a fan in the '70s, but when you published those um, 107 theses, I was um, I was feeling a lot of the same things that you were feeling, and it was so um, 
It, it was just, if, if, you know, I felt less alone whenever I read the 170 uh, soap. Thank you. Well, listen, your, your history as well, even with World Magazine, uh, Marvin Alasky, I've never met Marvin, uh, but he is one of my modern day heroes uh, of the faith, addressing the biblical worldview issues. And uh, thank the Lord for Francis Schaeffer and some of those giants, as well as the great Puritan writers as well. And uh, so thank you. Yeah. Rumors of my death were greatly exaggerated. So exactly right. We have we now have empirical evidence of that. So that's good. And thank the Lord for Zoom and some of these things that allow us to speak today. But listen, if I could be so bold, I hope we can do this again. You've been a delight to speak with. And thank you for having me on your broadcast today. Oh, it's my honor. Thank you, Steve. Blessings. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you, sir. If you enjoy interviews such as this, please consider supporting Ministry Watch. I'm recording this on Giving Tuesday, and I know that many of you will be supporting us today, and I'm grateful for that. But please know that our needs go on year-round, and we'd love to hear from you anytime, not just on Giving Tuesday. In fact, I have a special challenge for you to consider today. This year is the 25th anniversary of Ministry Watch. In fact, it seems a little bit um, providential, ironic perhaps, that Ministry Watch was founded in 1998, the same year that Steve Camp posted his 107 theses. And we're hoping that 100 people will help us to celebrate this milestone by making a commitment of $25 a month to Ministry Watch. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page, and we'll have a way there for you to make a recurring $25 a month contribution. That would be a huge help for us as we end 2023 and know that we've got sort of a baseline of donations coming in in 2024 as well. The producers for today's program are Jeff McIntosh and Rich Rossell. We get database technical and editorial support from Christina Darnell, Kim Roberts, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. I'm your host, Warren Smith, and until next time, may God bless you.